So, as I uh, gave a hint in the, uh, in the opening hymn, our passage today is in Luke chapter 19, and the title that we have in our programme, the series that we're going through together in Luke, Luke is the, uh, is, is the coming king. So it's Luke chapter 19, we are starting where Steve left off in the talk that we had last week, uh, we're, we're starting at verse 11. I'm going to read the whole um, passage, if I may, um, to you. Feel free to read along with me. I'm reading from the New International Version, or just feel free to sit and listen. So, Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. <clears throat> While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minors. It's a unit of currency. Put this money to work, he said, until I came back, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they, will be give, what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. So uh, quite a a lengthy um, passage. And this was the end of a nine-month journey for Jesus through Galilee, through Samaria, through Perea, and through Judea. And it was a journey which had seen some amazing miracles, hadn't it? And Jesus had preached to thousands and thousands of people along the way. And although his destination obviously was of the utmost importance, we just get a little reminder here, don't we, that his journey also was important. The journey of the Lord Jesus that we read throughout the Gospels, that is the way that he testified to his identity and purpose. And nine months, yet Jesus timed it perfectly that he should be arriving in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, with with all of its special symbolism. I think it's ironic that uh, at the very time that the Jews were preparing to remember the Passover and the Passover lamb, which speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus, they were all out in the streets wanting to welcome um, the Lord Jesus as uh, their living king. I think it's very difficult for us to get a sense of the mood of the crowd in the um, story account that that we've read about, but we have seen in recent years, haven't we, a number of uprisings of revolutions in various countries around the world where the people have tried and in some, on some, in, in some cases have succeeded in overthrowing the, the government. And I imagine that for those people who've gone through that experience in recent times, there's, there's often a sense of anticipation, um, of excitement even, that something great is about to happen, but then at the same time, a sense of fear. Um, unsure of the risks, the, uh, the, the dangers, the, the violence that might follow and, and uncertainty as well about who to trust, who's on the side of the government, who's, who's on the, the side of the people. And I think it would be fair to say that as Jesus approached Jerusalem in the way that we've, been, we've just read about, there probably was a similar sen- um, sense of revolution in the air as Jesus arrived. Now until Jesus, um, until then, Jesus had been very careful not to stir up the crowds um, too much. We, we know he, he often withdrew from them, didn't he? Um, or he avoided them completely. Or sometimes when he'd done something amazing for someone, he would warn them not to tell anyone about it. Because as he told his mother Mary three years earlier, at that um, marriage in Cana, when he performed his first miracle, his time had not yet come. But now, with a date which had been set 
way back in eternity past at a time that we can't even imagine that date was upon the Lord Jesus and so he deliberately provokes the response that would lead to his downfall in the, main, in, in, in the eyes of many. He deliberately provokes the showdown that would lead to his arrest. So how did he do that? Two main things. Um, firstly, although he had been careful, as I said, not to stir up the crowds too much along the way, nevertheless, he had created a reputation that, that went before him, shall we say. Um, his teachings, his miracles, the occasions when he referred to himself either directly or indirectly as the Messiah, or even on occasions when he referred to himself as deity, before Abraham was born, I am, uh, for example. He had created an expectation, the Lord Jesus, that he was going to do something amazing, that it was going to be a real game changer, and people were excited about that. So the Lord Jesus had carefully, if you like, choreographed throughout his life this, this showdown. He'd been careful not to rush it. He'd been careful to make sure it didn't happen at any other time apart from the time that had been appointed um, way back in eternity. But he'd been always working up to this, to this moment. And secondly, more precisely, the way he rode into Jerusalem. It was a deliberate fulfilment of Zechariah's prophecy, wasn't it? Let me just remind us of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord Jesus will have known this prophecy well uh, you know there are some prophecies that seem to be fulfilled regardless of the Lord's direct intervention the moment of his birth the place of his birth you know they, these were things decreed in heaven and which came to happen um, without the Lord Jesus specifically you know the Lord Jesus the baby clearly couldn't have didn't have any role in where his, 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 his mum went in, 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 in earthly terms um, but then there were other things that the Lord Jesus knew from Scripture, and he went out of his way to deliberately fulfill the Scripture. This was him declaring, telling people that I am the person um, spoken of here, like he did that time when he taught in his hometown Nazareth and said, look, this is fulfilled in your, in your, in, in, in your ears, in your times. He um, declared himself in that way to be the one promised through Scripture. We've got Jesus announcing himself with increasing clarity that he was the awaited king. And for many Jews, that could only mean one thing. The redemption of Israel, as two disciples explained to a stranger on the road to Emmaus. That was what they were expecting. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And how could they do that? How would anyone redeem Israel at the time? They were under the occupation, the rule of Rome. Surely it meant challenging the Roman authorities, overthrowing the government. And to use an expression used more recently um, in political terms, taking back control. That's what they wanted. And that's what they thought the Lord Jesus was going to do for them. And so it's not surprising, was it, that they were getting themselves all worked up and they were throwing their cloaks on the road um, in front of the Lord Jesus. Um, in front of his donkey as he went along 
Uh, and actually, we, we discovered in 2 Kings 9, that wasn't just a random thing. Um, 2 Kings 9, we learned that actually was a fitting way to welcome an incoming king to put your cloaks on the road in front of him. Their Messiah had come at last, and Israel was going to be great again. Of course, not everyone in the crowd welcomed Jesus, did they? Um, we have these Pharisees that we read about. And they were trying to calm things down. Um, I'm not, I don't, I've ministered before on the Pharisees. I don't think they were all bad. I think uh, most of them were misguided. Um, I think some of them had good intention. These were working class people who got into uh, religious roles because they wanted to make a difference. They wanted to do something good. Uh, I think they were all blind sheep who were victims of following the blind sheep that went before them. Um, so maybe in the crowd there were some who, like Nicodemus, had a genuine and healthy interest in Jesus. We don't know that. Um, and at the very least, we know that they didn't want to disturb him. So they didn't want to provoke a Roman uh, response. Uh, but no doubt there were other Pharisees in the crowd that day who were not of that persuasion. They were Pharisees who were out to get him. They were spying, they were watching him, they were looking for their opportunity. They were part of the wider plot to get rid of the Lord Jesus. So either way, whatever you might think about these Pharisees, in the middle of this joyful, triumphal procession, we see a hint of things to come, don't we? That ultimately, Jesus would be rejected. Not just by the religious establishment who were represented by the Pharisees, but by the common people, the ordinary people, people perhaps who were among the crowd who were welcoming him um, that day. And I think that's always been a characteristic, a characteristic of, of human nature. Um, we see it all around us in politics, in communities, in relationships, and in churches. Um, when things don't work out the way we want them to, or things aren't done in the way that we think they ought to be done, or to, people don't think the way um, we do, the natural reaction, we sometimes keep a lid on it, but the natural reaction is often to criticise or to reject or to walk away from things. And the people expected the Messiah. And they had, they had expectations of how he was going to behave. They wanted him to do certain things. They wanted to give him a throne, but they wanted to give him a throne on their terms. And when he didn't do what they wanted him to do, they gave him a cross instead. As God always knew they would. As the Lord Jesus always, always knew they would. So that's the sort of the backstory and the story that surrounds this thing, which is often the feature of, 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 of the Easter message, isn't it? The whole um, Palm Sunday and the whole, um, the whole week around, around Easter. Um, special time and a very poignant time in the gospel narrative. But woven into this particular little story, into this chapter, we have a parable. We have a little sub-story about the procurement of a donkey. Um, and we have, I think, a, a wider theme 
about the consequences of the decisions that we make. So I'm just going to cover those very, very briefly. Um, let's start with the donkey. Uh, everyone loves a donkey, don't they? Let's start, let's start with the donkey. Um, the disciples found the donkey um, where Jesus sat. Um, they were challenged, as Jesus said that they would be, um, when they tried to take it. And when they said the Lord needs it, they were allowed to take it again as expected. Now, we don't know whether Jesus had made a prior arrangement to hire the donkey. And so when the disciple said, the Lord needs it, it just said, oh, right, okay, he's the, he, the, this is the person who's hired the donkey. Or possibly there was just a, an assumption or, or foreknowledge on the part of the Lord Jesus that with his reputation going before him and anticipating the response, that as soon as he said, the Lord needs it, there just would be a willing cooperation and a willingness to have a part in giving the, uh, the royal arrival um, the transport. So maybe there was just an anticipation like, um, like that. Um, or maybe some commentators think that when Jesus said the Lord, told them to say the Lord needs it, that's not really the way the Lord ever referred to himself. It's a bit of an unusual thing to say, the Lord needs it. We read that into it, it's obviously Jesus speaking about himself because we, that's the way we always refer to him. Jesus didn't call himself the Lord. So some think that maybe the Lord, in this instance, is actually the true owner of the donkey. And the owners of the donkey that are referred to are the owner's representatives, his servants. So what the disciples were saying, that your boss needs it. Because Jesus had made an arrangement with his boss to hire the donkey. Who knows? We don't. You can endlessly speculate about things that we don't know. And sometimes you just have to cut to the chase and say, well, what really, what really matters in this story? Why a donkey? Why did Jesus choose a donkey? Again, actually, we don't know. We don't know. But sometimes there is room for healthy speculation when there is a reasonable lead in Scripture as to why something might be, might be so. And I think that's, I think that's what we have, we, we have here. Because the donkey had been used previously as royal transport. Not in the days of Jesus, but right back in the days of King David, donkeys were used to carry the, the royal household. So... There was a link with royalty in the choice of a donkey. There's also the, um, the character of a donkey. Um, maybe we read a little bit too much into this because, as I said flippantly before, we all love a donkey. But they do have a sort of gentle nature of them. They're beasts of burden. They're used for serving. They carry stuff around, don't they? They have this sort of gentle... Um, workmanship and humility in the donkey and uh, and isn't that so characterized in Zachariah's prophecy that we, we read before gentle and riding on a donkey I mean obviously it was a donkey because Zachariah said as I said earlier but why did my point earlier is why 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 did God choose a donkey at the beginning why did God tell Zachariah to mention a donkey why the donkey we don't know but it does appeal to me that there is a royalty link there's a link with gentleness and humility. And isn't that fitting for the Lord Jesus, the coming king who referred to himself as gentle and humble in heart in Matthew 11, and the one who Paul described as the one who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Philippians 2. 
So there's the donkey. Um, the parable, we have a parable. Um, it's quite similar to the parable of the talents that we read about earlier in Luke and also in Matthew 25. But this is a longer version. Um, and you know, it's quite a difficult version of the parable. It's quite difficult to work out what all the different characters in this longer version actually actually mean. And many scholars actually think that this is a, com a combination of two different parables that Jesus taught. Why Luke would do that deliberately, or possibly after Luke wrote it, in the copying process someone made a mistake and brought two parables together. Again, we can't be sure, only that we've got a parable here that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, and is similar to another parable which makes a lot more sense. So I'm going to look at the common denominator between the earlier parable and the way it's presented here and make just three obvious points. So we're not going to try and get into who the king is and who the different people are and why the, why the people that he was going to take rule over didn't want him and why he forced himself on them. In the, you know, all of that stuff is the stuff it's hard to, hard to work out. But there are three very obvious points in here that I'm going to make. Um, we, we, we know these from the, the parable of the talents anyway, but let's just recap. We need to be good stewards. That's the first point of the resources that God has given us. Money was the resource in, the, in the, the parables, but of course it's more than money, isn't it? It's our time, it's possessions, it's our abilities, it's our, our opportunities, it's whatever God gives us in this life. God expects us to use it in one way or another for his glory. Not just in preaching and teaching, but in the whole range of good works that God has prepared for us to do in our day-to-day -day lives. He gives us opportunities and he expects us to use them with all of the resources that he has given. The second point then follows on from that because not surprisingly the Lord will look to see what we've done with all of that. Not just in the present when he's always looking to see how we are serving him day by day um, but there will be an occasion when he returns when there will be a formal assessment of, of what we've done. He will, he will assess everything that we have done or, or not done with the resources that he has given us. And then the third point that follows on from that is that we will experience loss or reward depending on how the Lord evaluates our lives of service. And that ties in with what we understand of other scriptures, like the judgment seat of Christ. Let me just very quickly read 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. For we, and it's written to Christians, as you know, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Each of us one day will stand before the Lord in all of his glory on his throne and we will be assessed. That's a scary, terrifying prospect, isn't it? Have you ever paused just to think about that for a moment? You know, when you've ever sat at home deciding whether you should do something that you knew that you really ought to do and you just thought, nah, you know, 
does it really matter? You know, if we thought about those things that don't really matter and thought that one day we might actually have to answer the Lord and explain to him why it didn't matter that we came to the church service or we, we, um, we spoke to somebody who was asking, you know, that we really felt ought to know about you know, what it means to be a Christian, but we, we couldn't be bothered or we were a bit scared of the response or whatever. Can we imagine explaining that to the Lord, why we thought it didn't matter? <coughs> Scary prospect, but it's, with the scriptures tell us that's where we're going to be. We will all have to give an account. And it, it ties in as well, I'm just going to read one more scripture, which is the one a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It does have a particular specific context, but I think the principle applies it certainly um, is on a similar point to the one we just read in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Uh, if anyone builds on this foundation, building on the foundation which is Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, all the different materials that we could possibly imagine building or adorning something with, some good, some bad. Uh, if anyone builds using this whole variety of stuff, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. Remember the scripture says our God is a consuming fire. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, if it stands up to scrutiny, he will receive it, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, although only as one escaping through the flames. Sobering, very sobering thoughts, these, um, aren't they? <coughs> Which brings me on to my final point. As I said, there's a theme of consequences which seems to follow through this, this um, chapter. Um, at the beginning of chapter 19, we didn't look at it, but I know that Steve was speaking about this last week, um, we've got Zacchaeus. And um, we, with, with Zacchaeus, we have the very positive consequences of receiving Christ as our, as our saviour, haven't we? The very positive consequences um, of... Of, of, of salvation, the, the good news of, 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 of the gospel. At the end of the passage that we've read today, we've got a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, which, which happened um, 40 years later. And that was a terrible negative consequence of the Jews reject, rejecting not only Jesus, but also all of God's messages that had gone, messengers who'd gone, gone before him. Um, which is similar to the pronouncement that Jesus made um, on an earlier date when um, occasion that I mentioned it, um, in Thanksgiving this morning when Jesus said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent unto you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you are not willing. See, he says, next, your house is left to you desolate. God's house was now their house. So we have these negative consequences for the Jews, particularly of them rejecting the covenant relationship that God had um, offered to them. 
And in both Matthew, um, that one was from Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In both that one in Matthew and also the one that we've read in Luke here about the destruction of Jerusalem, we see the great sorrow that God has in carrying out judgments. You know, in, in, in both occasions, I can just imagine tears you know, welling up in the eyes of the Lord Jesus as he said these things. And, and it's the same with the gospel message. God loves a sinner. God desires all men and women to be saved. But he must judge righteously. As it says in John 3 and 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And God takes no delight in that. But righteously, it's what he must do. That's again one of the solemn, terrible things about the gospel, that it's good news only if we receive Jesus, only if we accept the forgiveness that God wants. If not, the wages, the consequences of sin um, are what we take for ourselves, are what we, 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 <coughs> we ask God, in a sense, to give us by saying we don't want anything else. So, uh, the chapter starts by showing us the positive consequences of receiving a, a Christ. It ends with the negative consequences of rejecting Christ. And in the middle we have this parable which has positive and negative consequences. Uh, the rewards and losses associated with Christian service. So that's the sort of theme of consequences that I see throughout, throughout the whole passage. And although we, we know that our salvation is never in jeopardy, uh, assuming that we've been truly saved in the first place... Um, if we've not lived out um, our salvation, worked out our salvation, lived it out, if we've not brought it to life in our day-to-day -day experience, then there is the expectation of some form of loss in the next life. For our, our aim surely is to live well, isn't it? Is to serve well. And although it should never be our motive, um, we have the encouragement in Scripture that a good life in God's assessment will lead to additional reward when we, when we reach glory, when we, when we get to our future home. And, uh, and we'll finish with that.